0: You're listening to the best of the Sergio show on 710 K U R V. Here's Sergio
1: about almost half of Americans who get paid time off. Say they do not use all of it. Should you be using all of it? Joining us on 710 K U R V mental health coach, Dr. Vince Callahan joining us. So how much time should you be taking during the year?
2: Well, there's a study in Australia that uh, they track people for a year and prior to vacation and afterwards and movement and all that kind of stuff. And what they came up with was between four days and 14 days is the optimal vacation time. But like you said, about half of Americans don't take their time. Let me throw another number out at you. Over 27% of people who actually do go on vacation take their cell phones, laptops, and tablets, and they check their emails and work from their vacations.
1: <laughs> it's kind of, that kind of defeats the purpose, I admit. Uh, though, uh, is that something for the sake of, I don't know, being polite to your co-workers, you know, just for like a simple question or something like that? It, because you're going to be well, gone for a week.
2: Lo- you're going to be gone for a week, but you. we have this feeling of guilt for taking time and like the workplace can't function without us plus we're addicted to our cell phones and tablets and laptops anyway but we that's a whole other story but we we take those with us and so instead of actually resting on vacation and letting the brain relax and de-stressing and all that kind of good stuff we work while we're on vacation what people don't seem to understand is that a true vacation actually helps your heart it fights depression, it creates stronger families, it stress busts, gets us out of our stressful moments for a minute, um, it actually boosts our productivity when we actually take a real vacation, and it adds sleep, the ability to sleep better once we get back. So there's so many great benefits for actually taking a true vacation, but like I said, 27% of the people who actually go still work at some point during that vacation, Doctor Vince. It defeats the purpose.
1: Dr. Vince Callahan is a mental health coach joining us on 710K URV. Let's expand on that for a second. You mentioned oh, uh, a real vacation, a real good chunk of time off, not just a day off, not like a three-day weekend or anything like that. In actual, I'm going to take this 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 period of time, this entire week off, and I'm going to do anything that's not work.
2: Yes, Absolutely. Here's a novel thought, why not actually go on vacation and sleep a little bit, sleep in and not have your cell phones turned on. Uh, What that study in Australia found that people who are actually active prior to vacation, they usually go away somewhere to still be active and their movement stays up after they come back. People with a sedentary lifestyle will do a little bit of activity but then they come back and sleep and kind of go back into that lifestyle. And so it's kind of amazing how, it's kind of like, I guess, a New Year's resolution. We say we're gonna do something and then we fall short about a month into it, month and a half into it. And so to actually go away and to rest and let your brain recoup from the stress that you're under, because we're always under stress. We're producing cortisol like crazy which leads to so many other things, but to actually take the time and unplug and leave the phones by by the bedside and leave the laptops and the tablets and actually do something as a family and rest, will do so much more for who we are as people and our families and the health reasons are, the research is out there, there's just so many uh, health reasons that, that it helps us to rest if we would actually do it.
1: Dr. Vance Callahan is a mental health coach joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. When you go on vacation, should you leave town or should you have a staycation? What are the benefits?
2: Uh, Leave town, get away from everything and unplug from everything. Because if you stay home, you're going to have a higher rate of that 27% of working than if you actually go away. So you should go away. Get away from everything and leave the electronics at home. People can know how to find you if you let them know you're on vacation. They'll they'll find you later. They don't have to find you while you're on vacation.
1: <laughs> I can imagine getting an email or a phone call from a, a coworker and and just saying. Uh, this better be related to where I'm going to go eat tonight, or there, there better be some sort of tourist attraction that you're recommending me to go see. Because I am not going to be answering any questions about any clients. That's right. Or 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 uh, any projects that are happening right now. That's right. Should you That's should right. you put your so, foot down? Is that uh, frowned upon?
2: Um. Well, the problem, even with people that are business owners, they feel guilty for setting those boundaries. And that's something I think we've first got to overcome is that feeling of guilt. The, The office can work without you. It can function. It functioned before you got there. It can function if you're not there. You're not going to lose your place in line. So we've got to get past that guilt feeling of, oh, my God, what's going to happen if I'm not there? Once we get past that, it's easy to unplug. Even business owners feel guilty for taking time off. But all the studies show that your productivity actually increases if you'll take this time and unplug.
1: Yeah, I always feel recharged after taking a, an extended period of time off and going back. You're come, you you're rested. You have new experiences to draw from. You have good ideas. It's good to take some of that time off and not feel guilty about it. Thanks a lot, Dr. Callahan. It appreciate is. it. Oh, any final thoughts Thank before we so go? Thank you much.
2: Any final thoughts? Yes, I actually just did my own advice and took a little vacation and did nothing but sleep for two solid weeks. It works. <laughs>
1: I love that idea. I might I might follow that advice. Thanks a lot. Mental health coach Dr. Vince Callahan joining us on News Talk seven ten K U R V. This is the Sergio Show. You've heard of offshoring. How about reshoring? That's right. We're bringing it back. Made in America. President and CEO of I-5 Services joins us now to talk about reshoring. Uh, Alan Davis joins us on 710 K U R V. So the Made in America movement is back, or it's strengthened or empowered, or what would you describe it as, actually?
3: Yeah, um... I would say it's definitely trending um, in the right direction, and we're seeing more and more production coming back to the U.S. We're seeing trends that indicate that we are moving in that direction. In fact, last year, we spent more on new manufacturing facilities than we ever have in the history of our country. We spent $107 billion on new manufacturing facilities. Um, Next closest year was 2014. Where we spent seventy billion, so almost a forty billion dollar increase, which indicates that really we are beginning to shift uh, much of our production back here to the U.S.
1: How much? I know we. I know that we rely heavily on China, and how long does first off? How long does that take? How long did that take over the years of us um, outsourcing to China?
3: Yeah, really, We uh, it took decades, and um, I would say the biggest chunk of that came between 2000, 2012, when 78,000 U.S. manufacturers closed their doors, 6 million jobs were lost. Um, it was a massive uh, hit to our country, and most uh, Americans, I don't think, really realized how critically important that was to us and how critically important it was To us to actually make things in the United States. Um, And I think during the pandemic is when we started to realize um, the effects that that might have on us if we're not producing at least the important items um, for our safety and our comfort here in the U.S., things like our defense production, our pharmaceuticals, medical food, those kinds of things.
1: And so how much of a percentage would you say that We rely on China and other countries to make our stuff.
3: Yeah, it's difficult to get a real number, but just a couple of uh, points that might help to illustrate. And depending on whose numbers you believe, anywhere between 60 to 90 plus percent of our antibiotics are produced in China. Now, that type of overdependence can have catastrophic effects with if you have disruption to that supply chain or if someone decides um, to tamper with that supply chain so the those kinds of uh of overdependence, I think are probably the ones that we should be most concerned about or thinking about uh changing the most.
1: Yeah, I remember during Covid uh I forgot what what drug it was in particular. But uh, China was like, no, we're going to gonna keep that for, for our people over here. You guys aren't going to get any of that. Uh, joining us on 710K URV, Alan Davis is the president and CEO of i5 Services, a company that uses, the, uses a database of manufacturing in the U.S. to find made-in-America solutions. So it, obviously it's not going to be something like a change overnight where we go back to um, making everything made-in-America. But what are some big steps that we've taken so far and – Um, What have those improvements been?
3: Yeah, I I think one of the trends that um, we should all kind of take notice of is that manufacturers in the U.S. who are producing in China have started to do two things. Um, First thing is they start to produce uh, more here in the U.S. and create more facilities in the U.S. um, for the U.S. and North American market and they're continuing to produce um, in China what they need for the Asian markets, which is a a positive thing when you think about it overall. You want to be able to source local first and be able to produce what you need as close to your facilities as possible. It keeps uh, costs down. It keeps um, pollution down. There are a lot of reasons why it really makes sense to to do it that way, and I, I think that should be one of the most telling signs for all of us that, we're we're beginning to to think more intelligently about the way we produce globally and producing more local first is actually a benefit to all of us.
1: Tell us more about what you do at i5 services.
3: Yeah, so we have a solution called the Connex marketplace. Um C O N N E X for anyone who might want to uh, get more information about it, but we built it because uh, years ago, we started looking and we found it was easier for us to find uh, manufacturer or production in China than it was to find the guy down the street who was making the exact same thing. And we just found that that was uh, a significant problem, that we wanted to make sure that we could find our U.S. manufacturing capabilities. You know, We've had many people over uh, the years tell us that, hey, we don't make that in the U.S. anymore and you know be able to search in our uh, database and find that yes we do make it here and we have hundreds of manufacturers who are currently producing it in fact I, I had a recent meeting with a dod leader who said they couldn't find ball bearings in the united states no one who made them and that they'd been looking and you know within minutes we had found you know well over 30 ball bearing manufacturers here in the us And so I think a lot of it has been visibility and understanding, right, that we couldn't find what we were looking for because we didn't have the resources to do so. And then, uh, you know, the beginnings of the belief that we couldn't or didn't produce it in the U.S. anymore when, in fact, we do. And so that's really what we're doing is helping to reverse that trend, helping people to see, know, and understand what our U.S. manufacturing capabilities truly are.
1: You know, a a good question I just thought of right now is, uh, are there any, uh, I, I know there's plenty of regulatory differences, but what are the main ones in America that would be different from China that would kind of get in the way of a wave of uh, made in America coming back?
3: Yeah, you know, and, and that's a great question because our policies that we've created over the years, uh, some of them helpful and good, others not so much. But um, they've made it difficult, particularly for some areas of manufacturing. And uh, we'll start with raw materials, right? Just the ability to get the raw materials that we need to produce um, a lot of the products that we need. We'll use chips. That tends to be a a really hot topic these days. Um, But chip production is dependent upon silica and uh we have certain EPA uh policies that don't actually allow us to work with or produce silica the way we need to in order to produce our own chips or certain types of them Um, in great uh, abundance here in the US. And so we do have many policies that have been developed over decades that maybe have not been updated for a long time. As our manufacturing processes have changed, we've become more efficient, more clean, and we do have wonderful manufacturing processes today. Our policies also need to be reviewed to make sure that we are doing the right things and producing in the right way. And so that is a really great question because those two go hand in hand.
1: Yeah, I imagine that that was one of the big reasons that we started moving over to China in the first place was because, well, you 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 uh, you cut around having to deal with a lot of that because that can get very costly and trying to accommodate and do backflips over a lot of the regulations that have been put in place into America. Hey, thanks a lot for your time here today. I Appreciate it. That is Alan Davis, president and CEO of I-5 Services, joining us on Talk 710 KURV.
4: This is The Sergio Show.
0: KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio show. Here's Sergio.
1: Is it possible that we could be too fat to fly? Joining us on 710 KURV, Patrick Arnzen is a former airline pilot who has built and run several aviation businesses over the course of his career. He joins us now. What is the the thinking behind this, being too fat to fly? And have uh, airlines already been doing this?
6: Good morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I don't think it's we're we're too fat to fly. I think that um, what a lot of these airlines and, you know, the FAA and, and, you know, the equivalent of the FAA in other countries, are trying to do is to determine, you know, what is a realistic average per passenger so that the pilots and the airlines can can more effectively and more safely calculate, you know, the weight and balance of these aircraft to make sure that everyone stays in compliance and, and we all stay safe.
1: Give us a, a behind-the-scenes look at the problem. I know it's, it's you know, it's low-key a joke that we have uh, in America an obesity problem and a lot of us like to fly, but um, there's there's actual legitimacy behind um, looking into this, right?
6: There really is. You know, I think as, as more people fly and as, as we as a population get bigger, um, it's, it's important to really understand, um, you know, the, the weight of the people that, that were flying. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, the FAA increased the average uh, adult passenger and carry-on bag to 190 pounds in the summer and, and 195 pounds in the winter this is up 12 percent from a, a couple of years ago when it when it was 175 uh, and 170 pounds and, and you got to keep in mind this also includes a 16 pound personal item up from from 10 pounds um, and you know those purses that i see some of those ladies carrying onto the, the airline uh look to be a little heavier than 16 pounds
1: it's like a vault, isn't it? Sometimes it's a really heavy duty bag. I've been noticing. <laughs> I don't know. We're what... talking
6: about my wife here. I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's bigger than a football sometimes. It's huge, bigger than a basketball sometimes. Uh, joining us they on seven hundred and ten KURV, former airline pilot Patrick Arnzen joins us. We're talking about weight requirements and new weight standards on flights. So, what have some other? Give us some examples of some airlines and what they've been doing.
6: Well, so again, I think as um, you know as these airlines add more capacity to a lot of these aircraft, you know they want to stretch as as much out of these aircraft as as they can. So I think a lot of these lower cost carriers are are adding seats, and you know that the, the legroom is shrinking. Um, and as they do that, we get a little bit tighter on the on the way. You know I remember as an airline pilot years and years ago, I was flying a, a fifty seat regional jet at a at a JFK. And it wasn't uncommon for us to ask the flight attendants to go in the back and count children because what we had to do is determine how many kids were on the flight so that we could we could calculate a weight and balance that worked to take off because it, it reduced that 175 pound person to to roughly half of that when when a when a child was back there um, so you know we're really right at the limit sometimes on some of these flights, especially on some of the longer haul flights with more fuel. Um, so it's important to really make sure that the airplane is, it's going to be safe and the weight isn't too much and it's, it's in the right spot.
1: Tell us about the balance. Does it, does it matter? Like, for example, if you had, let's say, let's say a plane can fit a hundred passengers, 50 of them are incredibly overweight and they all happen to be sitting on the left side of the plane. Does that, does that matter?
6: It's not so much more left or right, it's more front and back. Um, and generally speaking on, on modern airliners, especially the bigger bigger aircraft, it's not as big of an issue. On some of the smaller aircraft, it, it really is a very big issue. Um, again, you know, kind of back to that 50-seat uh, uh, regional jet airline conversation, a lot of times we had to move people forward or aft to make the weight and balance work.
1: Is this? Does this bring up any? Uh, are, planes are still the safest way to travel, even despite this. I mean, really, there's there's no problem. We're just trying to make it more safe and efficient.
6: I think that's that's correct. It's still absolutely a very safe mode of, of transport. I think this just ensures the continued safety um, as as you know weights increase and and as people bring more things with them. You know, I, I think that. Um, the, the carry-on items um, that people bring are are there's a lot more of them as compared with you know five or ten years ago when airlines didn't charge for for checked bags. so I think a lot of people are are carrying on a lot more items than they did you know in previous years to save that fee.
1: What do you see happening in the future? Do you feel like there's going to be more uh, weight requirements or will things just kind of stabilize this up like we'll get we'll get better. Uh, more advanced standards on airplanes, for example, or developments of, of airplanes.
6: I think you'll see the FAA continue to monitor the situation and, and uh, continue to, um, to sample the population size. And, you know, uh, as that happens, they may make adjustments up or down, you know, as people get bigger or, you know, or, or people get get lighter or the average um, weight of a, of a bag increases or decreases. I think you'll see a corresponding change in um, the average weight that, a, that an airliner uses to determine the weight
1: and balance. I got about a minute here. Tell me about zero time to airline.
6: Yes, yeah, so we're, um, we're an alternative to a, a four-year university. Um, we train pilots in about nine to 10 months to go from zero time to airline. Um, that gives, um, gives people the opportunity to get through their training really quickly, spend about a year or so building their experience as a flight instructor. Um, we have multiple partnerships with different airlines, and as soon as they hit a 1,500-hour mark, they'll get hired on at a regional airline, making six figures a year. So it's, it's really a very exciting time to be an airline pilot. You know, We've got young people coming straight out of high school um, or, or changing careers and uh, spending about two years with us here in, in Dallas, Texas, or Denison, Texas, and uh and then heading to the airline and and having a great
1: career that sounds awesome patrick hey thanks a lot for spending some time with us and telling us about that that's patrick arnson former airline pilot joining us on News Talk 710 kurv
4: this is the sergio show
0: your day with news and interviews important to you with a valley's morning news weekday morning starting at six sergio sanchez and tim sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with accuweather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your
5: family good morning good morning, good morning gentlemen, yeah. good morning guys well, let's now enjoy the show it's what you need
0: to start your day the valley's morning news with sergio sanchez and tim sullivan weekday morning starting at six on news talk seven hundred and ten KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio.
1: There's a new personal finance study that shows how fear around personal finances can impact mental health. Joining us on 710 KURV to outline the problems that are happening for every generation, CPA and money manager Bill Dandy joins us. Welcome back, Bill. Good, good hearing from you again. So it, I'm sure this uh, this study is different for every generation from the baby boomers to Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z. So what are the big differences here? Well, a
5: few things stand out. And you're right. There are similarities in that personal finances lead the way for all four generations, the baby boomers, Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z. Uh, But Gen Z disproportionately, 64% say that uh, a great deal or quite a bit of stress is around personal finances, and uh, while that's 45% for baby boomers, and as the generations are younger, it increases up to the 64%. Uh, 64% really worrying about personal finances is a large percentage, and it may be because they came out during um, our, our COVID uh, uh, period, and and they're the last ones to be hired, so they think they'll be the first ones to be fired in a recession, and they have a ton of college debt. But it's also interesting that they uh, worry about social issues at a much higher percentage than the other groups. So 47% say they uh, can lose sleep over over social issues versus uh, the millennials, it's only 29%. So there's a big gap between the millennials and uh, Gen Zers on that one area. But the personal finance, it's a stair step. The younger people are, the more they worry. And they worry about different things. The so baby boomers are worried about retirement versus Gen Z and millennials are worried about just getting by paycheck to paycheck.
1: Jim Rohn would say too much month at the end of the money. <laughs> we have problems with, with, with budgeting, I think is, is what our problem is because yeah, it's like you get, for example, I get paid, uh, every two weeks I get paid biweekly and, uh, once you get the check, that money's already gone, right? Because of bills and and debt or whatever, and it can be tough to figure out what to do with what little is left. Joining us on seven hundred and ten KURB uh, KURB is uh, CPA and money manager Bill Dendy. We're talking about the 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 impact of personal finance on the mental health of the different generations that are out there currently. So managing your your resources, uh, what, what, what how are yeah, and everybody's that, doing you, it differently?
5: Yeah, and you hit that right on nail right on the head there. And that for all the generations, it seems that uh, managing the needs and the wants uh, is one of the biggest challenges. I mean, with potentially infinite desires, with a finite number of dollars, it can be a challenge. And a lot of folks have increase their lifestyle faster than they've seen the increase in their salaries or as soon as they get an increase in salary they go ahead and increase their lifestyle to account for all of it without putting much aside for savings or having a safety net in place and so many of the challenges that all generations are facing in personal finance can be resolved to a great degree by uh, doing that tough thing Uh, It's budgeting. It's kind of like in the health issues, when you talk to the doctors and they say, well, if we just eat right and exercise, so many things would be better. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) that sounds good, but it's so hard to do. But it's the same type of thing in personal finance. If we would budget and plan, things would work out so much better. And if we're not experts in doing it ourselves, there are experts now in these fields. Uh, Two generations ago, there were not a plethora of financial planners or CPAs that were trained in the area of personal finance. But in today's world, there are a number of resources a person can turn to to get that kind of help, to take control of their personal finances and not get run over by it. And truly, it, it, think about when we didn't have as much. Did we have a whole lot less happiness? Uh, you talk to folks uh, late in life and they'll say, well, happiness and money are not necessarily co- correlated. Uh, you can have a lot of happiness without a whole lot of money. It Oftentimes, is where you have that sense of satisfaction and confidence, and you eliminate the fear. So if we have mental anguish around these things, take control of them, eliminate the fear, even if it means giving up a few goodies that we like.
1: You know, it's a good it's a good parallel to make, actually, uh, personal finance and personal fitness, because a, a few Oreos one day is not going to hurt you. A few Oreos every day is really going to take its toll on you. Uh, especially if you're eating them by the pack. Uh joining us on 710K URV is money manager and CPA Bill Dendy. But uh I think the 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 life uh the theory to everything, right? The theory to life for uh the different generations is also different too as far as spending the money because I know that millennials and Gen Zers they kind of value investing in experiences uh rather than than trinkets. At least that's what I've been reading. They're trying to go on trips and and Get try try to travel as much as they can and, and get those little life experiences. And that's, that's where some of their money is going towards. Uh, I'm not sure how that works for the older generations.
5: Well, it's interesting that the uh, places they spend their money are different. And they would be willing to spend more money on a trip that maybe uh, the greatest generation would say, this is a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And a Gen Zer would say, "No, no, that's this year's trip. Next year, we're going to do something just as grand." Um, but they're not as quick to put money into uh, perhaps the uh, the muscle car or the the house right away or some of the other things. And oddly enough, among the millennials and Gen Zers that own homes, they have less financial stress than those who don't, even though the homes have a higher monthly. Uh, payment and higher uh, ongoing expenses, and it may be because we've seen real estate values increase so much over the past few years uh, that we're seeing that comfort for those who are homeowners, even though they have more of their overall income going to the home. So uh, Gen Zers, they do spend their money in different ways, yet overall, um, we're we're looking at uh, uh, the fact that people are oftentimes, uh, again, controlling their budgets, maybe the way I control my weight. You know, if I if I do too much one month, I just back off the next month. It's summer season, <laughs> the swimsuits are coming out. Okay, I won't eat the, the cookies at the break. But you know, when I get comfortable and I'm able to button my, my coat button again, uh, I, I quit eating the cookies. So we kind of, we spend too much one month, we just back off the next. And as long as we're not going negative, we're okay. But the problem is not going negative and being okay is not good enough to make sure you have those emergency reserves and that you're saving for other things you're going to want to have later in life. And that takes a bit of a financial plan.
1: I need to have you back on, Bill, to talk about retirement, because I don't know if all the generations view retirement as the same, because uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure the younger generations are not saving for retirement. And uh, they, I don't know what they expect life to be at, at end of life, but uh, we'll see what happens. Thanks a lot, Bill. Appreciate it. As usual, CPA Money Manager Bill Dandy joining us on 710 KURV.
4: This is The Sergio Show.
1: It's the rise of the machines all over again. Wowzers! Uh, IBM is planning to replace nearly eight thousand jobs with AI. Joining us on seven hundred and ten KURV, Josie Parks is a expert on machine learning and AI. Joins us now. Uh, so, what's what's the story here with IBM? What what are these jobs that are being replaced here with AI?
7: morning, Zach. Thanks for having me here. Um... You know, it comes down to the human element. A lot of the things that are happening here, the repetitive tasks that humans are now doing, you know, routine tasks. You know, customer service is also a a job that, you know, people are not looking at, but that's being completely rocked with AI. And so, you know, IBM is just the company that's talking about it. But there's been so many layoffs in the tech sector that I, I got concerned. I'm like, look, how advanced is this AI getting? I don't think they're really talking about it, but it's more advanced than what we know. And so that's where you know, these specific jobs that are impacted now, we don't even know what's to come. And so that's where you know, getting ahead of this and trying to figure out how can we upskill the workforce and what ways can we start to use AI as day-to-day Americans. And a lot of people don't want even think about that. I've been on talk shows where they're just like, look, we don't even touch it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to know about it. But everyone's already using it. 99% of all Americans are already engaging with AI and they just may not know it.
1: I know in Congress they're talking about some bills where you need to be told that you're dealing with an AI for customer service or for whatever. Uh, do you see that as being a part of the future along with these advancements in AI
7: well you can do that but every single aspect of the technology experience is going to be wrapped in AI and so that to me you know yes we need regulations I 100% I'm, I'm not I'm from Texas so I'm not about government and regulations especially this government but when it comes to regulations and this this is war machines really like these are going to be used for so many things that it's unbelievable and to have some kind of safeguard, some kind of boundaries because right now there's no boundaries nothing is off limits and so the amount of manipulation that's occurring today and people don't know it it's mind boggling because we are predictable as humans and so it's very easy to predict outcomes and so they can figure out what kind of information can I get in front of them that could change. How can I influence them? And based on our previous behaviors, we can predict future outcomes. And that happens every day with humans.
1: Joining us on 710K URV, Josie Parks is a expert on next-gen technology like AI and machine learning. He joins us now on 710K URV. Uh, wh- this is tough. Uh, when, when I, for example, Uh, I had a problem with my 401k a few months ago, and I had to go into this long, long journey of dealing with different customer service reps for different companies, and I don't see AI giving me the same level of service that these kind humans did uh, in my time of need. But is that, I know that's the future that we're, we're gearing towards now, but can AI really replace somebody in the customer support world? 100%
7: because the information is going to be more accessible to this AI. You don't have to wait on a human to find anything. It's immediate. And that's where instant gratification, you know, that's also our our downfall as well. And so I do think that, you know, customer support, customer service will be there for that human interaction, but they're going to automate as much of that as possible. But look, you know, focus on the human irreplaceable skills. You know, the unique skills and qualities that humans have, such as creativity, critical thinking, emotion, intelligence. You know, we have complex problem solving. So there's aspects of that that are not going to be disrupted in the near future. But down the road, it I don't see how it won't.
1: Uh, that's an interesting thought. Can AI get upset when we ask a stupid question?
7: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> You think about it and this is another aspect of it is like, you know, AI for these customer support customer service jobs, it doesn't call in sick. It doesn't have vacation days. It doesn't miss. So it's very reliable. And I really pray to God it doesn't have a bad attitude because imagine terminator coming for you. So you you've upset the wrong agent.
1: <laughs> oh man, I know we're joking about this, but yeah, that's it's a it's a a very present possibility for reality in the near future. Um, should we, it should is. we actually, well, here's the, th- I, I think that, or I'm hoping that uh, what, I mean, what if AI does get fatigued? What if AI is like, you know what? I'm better than this and I'm just going to move on. You know, like, what, what, like what, well, would, what would stop it from doing that?
7: We, we literally would all have to band together and, we can't control other countries. So that that's a lot of the the issue. It's like, okay, as Americans, we see in 2080, this is over. Civilization is over as we know it because AI has completely taken over. And that's what a lot of predictions are. So, you know, looking, looking beyond into the future, that's where it's at. We can all band together and stop, but it's not going to stop China. It's not going to stop Russia. It's not going to stop Iran. It's like all these other countries and civilizations that have, you know, AI in them. It's just going to propel and perpetuate all of these biases and you know the warlords are going to use it there's there's a lot that's going to be done that's not to the good of mankind
1: yeah you're absolutely right that's one big thing that i'm curious about like we're having these ethics conversations over here i don't know if the other countries are having them at all much less at the same level that we're having them so if that if 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 we purposely uh, handicap ourselves in in that respect. Uh, the other are the other countries going to uh, show us mercy or are, are they gonna you know copy the, the the same conversations that we're having and apply it over there? I I honestly don't think so. Josie, thanks a lot for the conversation. I appreciate it as usual. Uh, Josie Parks is a next gen thinker on AI and machine learning, joining us on Houston 710 K URV.
4: This is the Sergio Show.
0: You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. This Here's is the Sergio. Sergio. Show.
1: Well, let's talk about climate change, ladies and gentlemen, but not in the way that you traditionally might think. Not in the way we got some we got some big wrinkly brains, some 200 IQ on the line with us today, Grayson Massey is with the Young Republican National Federation, the West Regional Vice Chairman, uh, as it were. And he's got an article in the Washington Examiner. To win younger voters, Republicans should offer original climate change solutions. Now, here's the thing. I I had a very long monologue yesterday talking about, hey, the GOP has got some problems in reaching younger people because we don't know how to talk to normal people we have this there's this lexicon of of speech that we've got and we kind of stick to that bubble we tend to just to, to uh, stick to that but also it's like that with a lot of our issues too some of it is very antiquated so i like this this angle that you're coming out of but what what uh go ahead and set it up for us what are you referring to when you say that republicans should be offering original climate change solutions
8: yeah, Zach. Thanks for having me on this morning. You know, as a, as a young Republican leader, I can tell you that young conservatives, broadly speaking, uh, want to see the party take an approach that is going to to curb, just candidly, you know, left of center Democrats' fear mongering on climate change. And and I take a you know I'll take a political tone to this. I I think that if we want to get serious about continuing to to win elections, we have to broaden the the pool, so to speak, the, on the issue of climate.
1: And it's interesting too, because I know that there are plenty of companies in this day and age that are trying to move towards looking green. Uh, for example, there's a few. I'm part of the EDC community, the Everyday Carry community, and they there are bag companies that make. Really big efforts towards a certain percentage of whatever money they make goes to some sort of uh, green solution or some sort of save the planet deal, and uh, a lot of the younger generations they're kind of into that. They like they like companies that that do that sorts of thing, and one of the one of the the problems that we have within our party, like I said, is that we have a, a hard time um, talking to one younger people and to normal people that aren't within the 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 red bubble that is the republican party sometimes and so we bl- we bludgeon people that do have concerns for the environment first rather than offering up a solution that might have the opportunity to actually resonate with some of these people what do you think
8: yeah know you're, you're absolutely right zach and and there's actually been some promising pieces of, of legislation that have been introduced and what and i'm not a policy wonk and I, I don't know how big of a policy wonk you are, Zach, but just briefly the, the prove it act that was introduced last week by Senator Kramer, Republican of North Dakota, uh, that would allow the require the department of energy to publish studies about how efficient American um, clean energy uh, is. And so how, how efficient our energy is. And I think that's going to be a crucial benchmark for us to go out to the rest of the world. Cause I, I think, you know, we, we, we as Americans, When we hear climate change, we immediately think of like, oh, you know, it's just some kind of liberal propaganda. But what we don't think about the opportunities that are there. The United States, the United States of America produces some of the clean, well, we we think and we, from the data we have, we believe that it shows that we have the cleanest sources of energy anywhere in the world. But with that, we also have some of the highest regulatory burdens of any country on earth when it comes to our energy production domestically. And so we've got to find a way to level the playing field because you have very pollution-heavy countries like China, for example, that produces an enormous amount of this dirty energy that they dump onto the world's global energy markets and it undercuts US clean energy. And so we need to find, and when I say clean energy, I'm not just referring about talking about renewables, I'm talking about all kinds of energy. Oil, gas, all of those types of energy are produced cleaner and more efficiently here in the United States. And so we need to find a way to determine how clean American energy is and how dirty foreign polluters are so that we can have a competitive advantage globally when we sell our products in the global
1: energy markets. Joining us on 710K URV. From the Young Republican National Federation, Grayson Massey joins us now. And we're talking about uh, a, a right-wing approach to climate change in an attempt to uh, communicate with a lot of the younger voters to which this issue is incredibly important for them. And like, like I had mentioned earlier, it's like the knee-jerk reaction within the party whenever you bring up touchy issues like LGBT or climate change the knee-jerk reaction is, "Oh, that shows a bunch of nonsense. That's very stupid. Let's just move on and talk about something else." And it, for the younger voters, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the GOP ain't getting any younger. Uh, for a lot of these other guys, these are very important issues. And one good way, or one good way of trying to recruit uh, younger people for this is playing offense. And the GOP again is really bad at playing offense on this, calling out China for. Not being as clean as the U.S. is would be a good step in that right direction, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't you say?
8: That's what we think, uh, Zach. That's what we we believe the right approach is. And and listen, you know, and you know this as well as I do, Zach. When you talk about climate change, what you're really talking about is energy, because the the two are so intrinsically tied. Because ultimately, whatever, however, the United States and the rest of the world chooses to chart its energy. Uh, sufficiencies, that's that's the whole premise for, for what's going on in the, in the world of climate. So as we tackle climate, um, we really just have to figure out how are we going to produce cleaner, more efficient forms of energy. And Ken, you're absolutely right. We feel like this is a winning issue for the GOP. We've sometimes sat on the sidelines, it feels like, but, but that has long changed. You know, there's new leadership in the House and is coming to to realize that we need to have a forward-thinking plan. And we believe that holding China accountable, uh, reinvigorating the American manufacturing base by being competitive with these, these foreign polluters like China, like India, that are still industrializing, they're still growing, America should be the one that is leading the way, and we can, we have, and we will.
1: Grayson Massey is a national board member in the West regional vice chairman of the young Republican National Federation joining us on 710K URV uh, tell me more about the prove it act is it
8: yeah that's exactly right Zach and yeah as mentioned you know introduced last week by Senator Kevin, Kevin Crane excuse me of North Dakota and again it would require the Department of Energy to publish a study identifying the average emissions of certain products that are made in the u.s. Comparative to those that are made overseas. So basically gauging what the help how, how pollution heavy American manufacturing is vis-a-vis uh, Foreign emitters like China and India and I, I think that that's going to be a helpful benchmark for determining What products can the United States make? Much more does make more clean and can do so more efficiently and, and I think we're gonna that's gonna be a surprising result we already have some data that supports that the United States holistically outperforms in, in almost all categories for clean energy, uh, or excuse me, more efficient and cleaner forms of production than other, other countries do. So we're really excited about this. It's uh, it's going to be a two year, uh, piece of legislation that's going to be enacted. Um, and then thereafter they'll continue to renew this moving forward, but we feel like it's uh, it's a step in the right direction.
1: I, I absolutely agree with you. I if you were the guy that's uh, doing the elevator pitch, how would you pitch it to the old guard within the party to get them on board? And how would you pitch this to the, the younger crowd to be like, hey, listen, you know, we actually have some climate change solutions here, and the the world is not as doomed as you think it is. And if it is, it's not our fault; it's China's fault.
8: Yeah, no, th- I think that's a great question. But yeah, my elevator pitch would be. Uh, young conservatives would like to see our party take the lead on issues affecting American workers Affecting American manufacturing that, that is this candidly has been decimated over the past 50 years from low-cost uh, Production in in foreign countries and we'd like to see the world hold the United States Or excuse me the US hold China accountable for this pollution
1: Where can we get more information? Be, oh, uh, go ahead go ahead go ahead
8: sorry No, that's fine. That would be my elevator pitch to the next generation: that we want to reinvigorate the American manufacturing base, and we can do so by creating more American jobs here.
1: Where can we find out more information on the Prove It Act and more about uh, you guys over at the Young Republican National Federation?
8: Yeah, there was several helpful pieces. Um, One on the Prove It Act. One was published by the Climate Leadership Council. I'd encourage. Anyone that's interested in learning more about the Prove It Act to visit the CLC, Climate Leadership Council.org. And then for more information, if wanting to get involved, the Young Republican National Federation has chapters all across the United States and all 50 states. Please visit www.yrnf.org.
1: I tell you, for the, more information, the GOP really needs more solutions like this if they're going to expand into that demographic of uh, 18 to 29. I'm telling you, and it just feels like they're very rigid on on issues that are very important to the the younger generation. At the very least, just be like, listen, if we're going to talk about this issue, here's how we would do it. And they're reluctant to even do that. So I appreciate stuff like this, and thanks for bringing it to our attention, Grayson. Appreciate it. Grayson Massey is a national board member and the West Regional Vice Chairman of the Young Republican National Federation. Joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV.
4: This is The Sergio Show.